All right, folks. Well, if you don't know the man sitting across from me, I would be kind of surprised because you should. This guy is anywhere and everywhere. I'm going to go ahead and give you the quick courtesy of giving you the Wikipedia description. Sir Jordan (laughs) Belford here, an American author, motivational speaker, and former stockbroker. In 1999, pleaded guilty to fraud and related crimes in connection with stock market manipulation into a penny scam. He published the memoir, The Wolf of Wall Street, in 2007, which was adapted into a film with the same name and released in 2013. Well, Grace, I've been wheeling and dealing so long today in the studio that I forgot I have not even ate. But that's okay. Why is that okay? Because the Brilliant Dumb Show is presented to you by Postmates. For a limited time, Postmates has given our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days using promo code BROBIBLE. $100 of free delivery credit with Postmates. Download that app now. Anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmate it. Jordan, you... (laughs) I gave you the follow you on Instagram and all that. You don't stop, man. You're a machine. You know, I, I think that to me, when I'm sitting still doing nothing, I feel like I'm like sort of heading down to the grave. It's like to me, I feel most alive and like really am at my most vibrant self when I'm moving, when I'm talking, when I'm sharing. And I think that most people are like that. I think that either you're growing or you're dying. If you're trying to stay in the same spot and maintain, it's the beginning of the end of greatness. So right. I just live my life that way. I'm not even trying to do it. I just it's just the way I, I've always been. I know? said to you, you know, earlier before you hopped on, you got that East Coast, you know, mentality where it's just <laughs> pedal to the metal, ram it yeah. down your throat like and yeah. I like it. Um my question for you is at what point was in two thousand eleven, wasn't it when you realized that you wanted to do a podcast, be a motivational speaker. When did you realize you wanted yeah. to then do that? So for me, I had been motivating people since I was in my early 20s. And I always had my own businesses and I built sales forces. And as part of that, I realized very early it was instrumental that it's not just about teaching people to close, which is important, the skill of persuasion, and I teach that. But also, you know, how do you ensure that someone shows up every day at the top of their game, so to speak. It's important in athletics, it's important in business, it's important certainly in sales, uh, especially in sales when it's about you know transferring an emotion to someone else, so an emotion of certainty. So there's two parts. There's the skill side, then there's the mindset side. So that always is motivating, and motivation is a daily shot in the arm that allows someone to show up and be the best they could be in that day. Right. It's very different than the skill of closing. So I would always taught both and instilled both in everybody that I groomed to be a manager of my people, right? So back in 2000 and I think it was six, got out of jail. So I had this massive company, right? And I made mistakes. I went to jail. I deserved to, and that's that, right? Um, but I, by happenstance, ended up in jail with Tommy Chong from Cheech and Chong. Get the fuck Was out. my bunkmate. We shared a cell together. Were you top bunk or bottom bunk? Uh, no, we were side by side. Side by side bunk, okay. Side by side, right? And Tommy was the one that got me, convinced me to write a book. Um, So I started writing in jail. I taught myself to write in jail. Didn't really write the book there. And I got out, wrote the book, and things started to happen. You know, the book picked up a lot of acclaim because right away Leo DiCaprio and Scorsese attached to make it into the movie. 
So I wrote a second book. And I finished that book, and then I was going to write. Was a- this after they had already made the movie? No, well, long before, but long before. Gotcha. Yeah, this is two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and then the movie came out in fourteen, and the thirteen beginning of fourteen. And then what happened was, is I was on my third book now, and I was up in a place called Mendocino in Northern California with my then sure. wife, and I'm miserable because I hate to write. I hate See, writing. That surprises me. Hate. I, like, if there's one thing in this world I hate, it's writing. To write. And I just started writing another book right now, but I hate doing it. And at that time, I had almost deluded myself into thinking I was going to be, you know, a professional writer. I mean, just write book after book after book because they were doing well. And I just, you know, be like a Tom Clancy type or whatever, right? And what happened was, my wife's like, what's wrong? Why is I just hate doing this? I just, it's boring me. I feel disconnected. I just, you know, hate it that I. So we like sat down. We said, you know, maybe you know we should just change direction. We're partners. We're a team, and um, and uh, I made a conscious decision to become a speaker because I was always a great motivator. And at the time, you know, I was known in Wall Street area, but not really much outside. The book had done really well, but it wasn't like after the movie. When so you- I made that switch because I because here's the thing: it's an important point for people is that this you know when you think about what do I want to do to get to want to get rich doing A, B, C, right? Well. You know, people say I want to monetize my passion. Well, that's, you know, a lot of bullshit a lot of the times because it's not, maybe your passion's not monetizable or maybe you suck at your passion. I was a really good writer, but I hated doing it, all right? So to try to monetize that when it's not my passion, I despise it, or maybe it can make money, but I'll be miserable. The idea is to A, find something that that you love doing and B, that you're actually really good at doing and that C, is monetizable. When Can you, you make money? When you were in the process of writing this book and when you, when you were serving, how fascinated were the other inmates in you? Did they go to you for advice and guidance? Yes. They did. I So they knew you. They yes. knew who you were. Yes. And um, I actually was like running. I was not like I was running the the uh, drug program. So I went through this drug program in uh, prison, which everyone goes through because you get a year off your sentence, right? Got to do it. And uh, I was in this group of like 50 people and like within the third or fourth session I was like running the group already and the, the actual head of the, the prison the warden called me and said hey we want you to run the program which you had no teacher. problem with yeah sure sure you know because right. I, I was just like really good with that sort of psychology and and I understood the mindset of drug addicts as an ex-drug addict right, right? and um so yeah I always was mentoring people in jail and and helping people were reading my early pages and laughing and I was like wow are they just laughing because like you know they're trying to make me feel that you didn't know you know right um but yeah I was it was pretty well known and then do you remember where you were when you found out that now they're going to be making a movie yes based on where were you Manhattan Beach Country Club Jesus Christ. I'll never forget I was at the club and I wasn't even a member yet back then I was just someone's guest and my phone rings and it's my agent Scott Lambert saying me you're not going to believe this, but there's a bidding war right now between Leo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, and both sides have said whatever they one side pays, I'll pay ten percent more. So and their, I'm like, holy shit! Bidding, the bidding, bidding war. Off oh, it's on public. This. That's public information. Jesus yeah. Christ! Yeah. So the next day, an article came out about it that there was this big bidding war, and they made it like Brad and Leo were enemies, and it was just bullshit. They were just both bidding on the same project. It right? helps you though. Yeah, yeah. It was it was really interesting. It was a funny story. So um. Um, what happened was so the bidding kept going up and up that weekend. Every you know 
every side saying, I'll pay you 10% more. And there was actually also Mark Wahlberg wanted the picture. But back then, I love Mark Wahlberg. He was just getting, he wasn't his biggest star back then. Right. Now he's huge, right? Now, but so even while the bidding's going on, do you have a preference like saying, you know, I hope Leo wins it or I hope Brad Pitt wins it? Well, it was up to me. It wasn't winning it. You I had, could try a choice. It's my choice. choice. Oh, yeah, Did my you, choice. Who was your preference? So I always loved Leo. I love. I like Brad Pitt, too. Um, but I thought that Leo was better. And then what happened was Leo said, hey, I got Marty Scorsese. He's going agree, to agree to direct it. Done deal. Done deal. And that was that. Instantly. Yeah. I mean, you know what? It's got to be nice that if somebody would to play your life, at least it's going to be Leonardo DiCaprio. Not Danny DeVito? Yeah. <laughs> and I love Danny DeVito, but like. Yeah, I would get like Jack Black. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, Just right? something yeah, it was like pretty, that. It was a, a great thing. I had two really, I guess, of the best looking actors, right? And the most talented actors in the world. Week. So it was pretty good. I was saying, I'm doing pretty good about this, you know? So, uh, yeah, it was amazing. It was an amazing moment for me. I was almost, it was disbelief at that point. Okay. But like, the funny part was that when I called a couple of my friends, it started happening, my friends were like, yeah, that figures. <laughs> Makes sense. So, like, what else would it be? Like, with your life, your life has always been like this. Of like, course. whatever you do. It's like, no shock, like, you know, that, that this is happening. It's you bound know? to happen. Right. So, like, I was like, maybe that's true, but I'll tell you what, this is an extraordinary, I knew it was an extraordinary thing. And then what was prepping this with Leonardo DiCaprio? Do you guys just go out to lunch? Is he spending time with we'll you? Ton, ton, we, about a year of a lot of time spending together. Before, just wow. doing everything. Um, not just, you know, some formal, some like that, just going out and hanging out. But then stuff formally, working on certain aspects, working with dialect coaches, um, going through the script line by line, dissecting every word, changing things, strategizing on on certain scenes. Uh, I, I think the funniest story was when I was in his house and he's, Leo's never done drugs. I, see, I, I would see him dabbling a no, little bit. Uh -uh. No, no, never done drugs. He drinks, but never, he's never done drugs. And um, he's like, what does it feel like to be on a quaalude? And you know, you know, what does it look like? How do I act? I said, well, let me just give you an explanation. I, I take him through the different phases of a quaalude high, starting with the tingle phase where your fingertips are tingling. Then there's this you know slur phase where you're, Slurring your words, but you don't care because slurring is okay. Baby slur, you slur, slurring is cool, right? Then you go from there to the drool phase where you're like talking and drool's coming up. You're like, oh, baby's drooling, I drool, that's good too. And then the last phase is unconsciousness. So I'm, I'm actually taking him through this and I'm crawling on his floor. And then he's like trying to, he's like crawling on his floor, trying to mimic me. And his father walks. He's like, what the fuck are you guys doing? We're like crawling on the floor. He's like, no, I'm just, you know, acting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then to see and like even talking to you, what's amazing to me is he nailed it. He did. I mean, was it weird to then see it then come to life? It was. Yes. I will. You know, I don't want to. Um, so it's hard to recreate in this moment what I felt the first time I actually saw this on the screen. But um, before I saw it. My agents, or well, it wasn't my agent, but my agent's uh, wife, this girl, lit woman Alexandra Milshon, really well respected, a brilliant um, producer of movies and TV series. Um, in fact, her dad's Arnon Milshon, who owns New Regency, so she, you know, very, very well respected family, uh, and she's the best. And she saw it before I did. Before I was, you got to. I was over, so I was overseas when the cut, there was a private cut that came out, and I was just away. I was on tour, and she was going to see it and in, in L.A., and I'm waiting for her, and she calls me back, and I said, well, she's like, uh, I, 
I don't know what to say. She goes, I cannot describe what I've just seen. She goes, I'm out of breath. She goes, let me just promise you one thing. Your life will never be the same again when this movie comes out. Holy she was like, shit. she goes, I never, she goes, I, I don't know how to quite describe it. It was so, I'm like, good, bitch. She goes, good. But it wasn't just good. It's like, I've never seen anything like it before. Did you? I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, I just trust me. When you see it, you'll know. And then when I saw it, I was like. You thought the same thing? I was, when it was over, I saw it with my, with my wife at the time. And they're like, holy fucking shit. I felt, you know, it was like the Matthew McConaughey when he, he went in the market. She goes, holy oh. fucking shit. That's how I, I felt. And there was, it's still to this day, whenever I watch the movie, um, or see scenes and he says my name it still sounds weird to have someone else saying Jordan Belfort right. and it not being me and um, but I was I mean it was listen, some, some parts were tough because they were fictionalized and they weren't there were things that I did that weren't true that were terrible like punching my wife in the stomach which I never did right um, and you know but like I took that in stride it was a fictionalized movie and some you know it was based on truth much, much of it was true there's some parts fictionalized um, but all in all, and those parts he had called me before. It was like a shock. He called me. He goes, hey, is it, I want your permission. They want me to do this. He's very respectful, Leo. He's a great guy. And uh, he's like, you know, I want to make sure you're okay with this um, because it's not, didn't actually happen. I'm like, yeah, you know, do what you got to do. I understand it's a movie, you know? You know what's amazing that I wanted to ask you? I heard Leonardo DiCaprio in an interview where he, he's talking about you and he says that he, it's amazing and he's shocked that you're still alive going yeah. through what you went through. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I do in the sense that um, you know, there's two sides to it. There's the the all the near death experiences I had along the way with plane crashes and yacht sinkings and all the stuff. Then there's the sheer fact that I just didn't overdose. So the yacht did sink. Oh yeah, yeah. Son of a bitch! Yeah, yeah, you like, watched yeah. that sucker go down? I did, indeed, I did. It was it was much worse than the movie. That scene was really underplayed for budgetary reasons because it was a long, drawn out terrible crazy process that went on right. for about 18 hours and it was uh it was just wild and the plane crashed as well um that you know but it was a week later not, not while i was i wasn't watching it crash as i was on the boat that saved us but it crashed a week later but i think you know for me when um when i looked at that movie overall mostly it was like i just can't believe that like that was my life, and it seemed normal at the time. At the time, so you say, "Well, did I make it? How did I live?" I mean, at the time, it just seemed like I was putting one foot in front of the other and just living my life. It didn't seem that insane because what you do is you surround yourself with other people who are living just like that are you, doing the same yeah. thing, yeah, right. Yeah. And was there ever a time, like, I think even, you know, throughout the movie, you're kind of hoping to yourself. I know I was. It's like, okay, get out now. You yeah. Know, you made your money. Yeah. Get out. Was there that time well, where I you did. said? I did, though. Yes, that's the fictionalized part. So the fictionalized part is um, there's the scene where the Jonah Hill character, yeah. right? The, Who, the, he was the, great. He was great. Right? Awesome. Donnie, Donnie, the movie, Donnie Ace, his <laughs> real name is Danny. They call him Donnie, right? <laughs> and, um, and, so basically, I'm saying, you know, fuck it. I'm leaving. I'm, I'm not leaving. I'm staying. Right? The show. That's Which not, is like, you know, that's people, not true, though. That's being, so that did not happen. No, I'm not stupid. I left. Right. And I was running this guy, Danny, took over the firm. And a lot of things that went on, what, what he was doing, that was saying I was doing him. Um, but also, in that, you know, the, the Danny character got, was like the catch-all character for all bad behavior. So in other words, what happens a lot in movies is they collapse characters. 
So they'll take four or five characters and they'll collapse it into one character. One person, right. right? So that's the Danny character got the whole a lot of stuff. Brunt of everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah everything. So, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, in some ways he was worse and in other ways he wasn't as bad as that because they just collapsed other characters' behaviors into him, you know? Right. So, but that, but that iconic scene, which was a great scene, I gave that speech and it was very, it was identical, that speech. And that's in the book. And then um, instead of saying the show goes on, um, I gave the mic to Danny and walked off, not into the sunset. Then I was running this, the firm from behind the scenes for about, a year or so, and then I then I kind of faded away. I started running Steve Madden Shoes, was my other company, right? Which I was does working. take place in the in the yes, movie as well. That was right, and that was that was really heavily fictionalized in the movie because it was much. The truth was, Steve was not a. It was a startup when I when Steve right. came to me. He wasn't a big shoe company. He was a tiny. He was just getting started. And I financed it, and then Steve and I were partners, and I worked at the company for years together. It was great. Steve's a brilliant guy. And um, and then it became Steve Madden. So in the, in the movie, it's like that he was already the hottest name. No, he was actually a startup, Steve. So did like DiCaprio or any of them tell you certain things would work better if we do have to fictionalize this? Like even yes. as far as the speech. No, that that the point was that point that that one speech where I said, you know, you know, fuck it, I'm not leaving. The show goes I'm on, right? Leaving. When I saw them, like, oh, I'm like, you know. I'm like, that makes me look like I'm an idiot. I'm out of control. I've lost my, my touch with reality. Right. Like, who the hell would stay when they can get away with it scot-free like that, right? Um, but I understood why they were doing it. It wasn't designed to hurt me or make... They weren't doing it to try to screw me over. This actually made the movie a better movie because it kept the action in the boardroom. In other words, right. it just would make it more... If it was a TV series, which it's going to be, by the way, we're making it into a TV series. Are you really? Yeah, we are, yeah. So in a TV series, you would draw that you could do it. You could develop all these subplots. I'm leaving but running it behind the scenes and all this sort of intrigue. That would be great. It's a whole season of how now I lift the firm if I'm still running it. In a movie, you don't have that much time. They want to keep the action in the same location. See me, you know, degenerating into, into insanity, staying there, when in fact... It, I was degenerating into insanity, but in other places, in other ways, you know? So there's so many different subplots. Right. It's It really is. It's just absolutely fascinating, to Even just to hear the backstory of when, mm. you know, what went behind it and just kind of everything that, that went into it. What if there is a – what was the moment when you knew you had to get out? Was there a specific thing that happened where you said, okay, I do got to get out of here when you did make that move? Well, I, I – what happened was, is like the movie says, is I, the SEC was suing me, and they offered me a settlement, and I, I paid them three million dollars, um, which is a lot more money back then, and then to be permanently barred from owning a brokerage firm, not from investing in stocks, just owning a firm, right? And in that moment, uh, I had two junior partners, right? One was Danny, the other guy was Danny Kenny. And um, and Danny was the sharper one of the two. So, like, I had a deal. Danny was going to stay behind and, and run the firm in my name, basically, right? Now I get these, you continue to get paid out over time, blah, 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 right? Um, it seems like a pretty good deal. It was huh? a good deal, right. So I, so I took that deal. I, I took that deal. Um, and I had this moment in time, like, I think a 30-day period maybe where I, I sailed off into the sunset, and I went to Europe, and you know we had some fun, and and then I came back, and as soon as I came back, um, got hit with a subpoena from the FBI. 
It's the day you got like back. within a week of within a few days of coming back. I got hit with a subpoena saying that was a criminal investigation. So in other words, there's a very big difference. And these are things that in the movie that really weren't distinguished because you don't. It's just too complicated that you know you're being investigated both civilly and criminally. Civilly is the SEC, criminally is the FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office. So just because you settle a civil case, and they do say this in the movie, doesn't mean that you automatically now have no criminal liability. They can still come after you right. for criminal liability. Chances are somewhat reduced, but whatever. So as soon as I had settled, I settled, see, the FBI then came in and kept investigating. It wasn't because I stayed. So in the movie, that was a weird narrative. That, that was just fictionalized. So anyway, um, but that wasn't even a problem. It, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was a Certainly not a, a good day in my life when I knew I was under criminal investigation. But I was like, you know, whatever. Most of what I was doing was legal. It was very difficult to prove what I was what I had done illegally. It was, you know, defined to a very small part of my business. It wasn't like hard, Bernie Madoff where you just anyone that actually looked at it, you say, wait a second, it's fraud. Right. That was not what I was. I had a real firm. You had to really find like ninety five percent was all on above board. And there was one little thing I was doing, you know, and 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 whatever. It's a separate issue. Anyway, the point is. Is that what ultimately got me though was smuggling money to Switzerland? It wasn't the brokerage. That's firm. what they ended up charging yeah. you with. Yes, that's what happened. I got caught for and, and it was just by sheer dumb luck. The same banker that I was using to launder my money was caught up in some sting with Rocky Aoki from Benihana. Oh, that whole guy. I don't even think Rocky Aoki got gotten. It was, I think it was Rocky Aoki was under investigation. Have you ate at Benihana since? <laughs> yeah. So, no, it's funny because I, I, I don't know what really happened to Rocky. I don't think he, he was, it was some of the grumblings. Right. But the point was my guy got picked up because of that investigation. That led then over to And that to led you. me to them to me, yeah. He flipped on me, that guy. What is, what is the, you know, of course, and it's got to be bizarre for you to, to look back on and, and watch. If you could say, what was probably the main thing that you miss from that lifestyle? Of course, you've changed things, and but what, what do you miss from it? Is it the money? Is it the mm. women? The no. Listen, I, listen, you know, I, I'm fortunate enough that I, that I do well financially still. I have a beautiful girl in my life. It's not like that. I'm, it's not that. It's... Not, and sorry, not the drugs. If anything, it would be the camaraderie of taking thousands of people and having them in one room, and like it became its own independent society where you know just everyone was getting older together, having ch getting married, having children. Together. There was all this intrigue and sort of stuff going on with all these people that were the same age going through life together and just experiencing this madness. From something that you created. Yeah, and that was really cool. Now, I get that now, but in a more disconnected way because I go around the world and I, and I you know coach and mentor people. People come to my events and they're huge events uh, with thousands of people. The difference, though, is that I don't get to see them every single day, and I get to—I I hear from them in emails. Thank you, you changed my life. I get all these emails every day. You changed my life. You changed my life. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan, blah, blah, blah. but it's not like when it's that in your sphere of influence every day, and you're watching them get that first house, have their child. You know, um, you know, you go through the. We used to say this: everything existed within the four walls of the border. There was births. There was deaths. There was. Love, there was betrayal, there was hate, there was greed, there was fear. All the best and worst of humanity was in that boardroom in full display on steroids. Right. And everyone was fucking everybody because it was before the Me Too era. You know, so there was this total just non free for all. And and there was no sexual harassment at all, though. That was not part of the culture at all. 
the girls were equally happy to be involved or because if they weren't and they were hassled, guys would kick the if, if you were like no girl was being harassed in our office. If you are, the guys would kick that kick guy's the, ass. Kick the piss out of him. Oh yeah. Because like there was respect for women and but we just the women were as crazy as the guys. They were just like oh, full right. on. There was just it wasn't like that. And I and anyone that doubts that my, I saw my assistant, who's still a friend of mine, name's Mona. Mona's awesome, right? And um, and we were about maybe three years ago. I was at an event in New York, and she came, and she was telling everybody, "You girls don't know what we had. It's so good. It was so great. It was the most empowering place because a any girl could be a bro. It was like man, women. It was it was purely an egalitarian and society. So you still keep in touch with a lot of people from the office. I do. Yeah, that's awesome. I do, especially the ones that were friends of mine before. Um, it all happened. I lost touch. You, know, you lose touch because everyone moves away and goes on with life. But the culture that we had it was not. You see, it's very different, like a, a Weinstein esque sort of thing where sleep with me to get apart. No, it's like, if you want to fuck me, fuck me. If not, who cares? I'll fuck someone else. Jordan, how many times a day do you think you were banging? Me? In your prime, how many times a day were you? But was it just nonsense? Was it deals and sex? Deals and sex? Deals and sex? A little bit of drugs. In the movie, in Matthew McConaughey said he's got to at least jerk off three times three a times, day. Times hey, that's his rookie number. I'm going to pump the numbers up, right? So You believe those are rookie oh, numbers? Yeah, yeah, at least. Yeah, at least. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, it's funny. I don't, I don't jerk off as much anymore. Back in my prime, I was fucking pumping them out, though, of course. But you didn't to, have to. Clarity. That's you didn't have to jerk off. I mean, oh, yeah, but jerking off is amazing, though. Yeah, you do, because you kind of get to know yourself <laughs> a little bit more. Self-love is a very important part of life, you know what I'm saying? I mean, come on. So, I, I, the beautiful woman, there was times where you just said, you know what, I just want time, I just want to No, no, sit in my me. face while I jerk off, basically. Okay, you know, like I, want, I want a woman around, but I, I, uh, I don't mind. A little self-love feels good. Or by myself, I'm, 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 I'm like okay either way with that. But the point is, is that um, in terms of how many times I was having sex, I mean, I was, it was... You know, listen. In the early days, it was it was really really bad. But in the latter part, a lot of the drugs this is before Viagra. So you'd be doing like massive quantities of coke, and then you couldn't get it up. And you'd be with a hooker, and she's like, you know, giving you a blowjob. You're like, oh, it's fine. It's yeah. soft. Keep going. It's fine. It still feels good. All, <laughs> all you come, coke addicts know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, it feels great. Yeah, just keep going. Give me five more hours. We'll be all like, I'll come. I'll get hard. Just give me some time. Yeah. So so um. But that was many, many years ago. So, but yeah, we, I was having a massive amount of sex uh, with a lot of partners. I did my best dating after I was married, I would say. Right. Um, but that's my old life. I mean, I'm a very different person today. I I, I was in a relationship with a woman for about 12 years, um, and um, I was faithful to her. Never, you know, never cheated in 12 years in the last relationship Good I was with. And now I'm with someone else who's awesome, and uh, um and I'm faithful now, but you, know, you look, you know, as you get older, I think to me it's just too much work. I mean, and I don't want to lie and have to deal with the lying and the, you know, once you start, That's you know, why you don't want me, Jordan. You may just think, just keep jerking off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just really could never go wrong with you. Really off. can't, especially with Pornhub these days. I, I mean, I, I never actually been in it myself, but I have friends told me about it. You know, yeah. This thing called, oh yeah, there's heard, a little heard, bit of everything. You heard you about that, right? Like, That's the difference, though. It's like back then, if you wanted to, like when I was growing up. If you want to get hold of like a Playboy magazine, you stick it under your bed. It's a big deal. Maybe you'd see like a pussy, but like you'd see like a like a half a shot, like in you know behind. Now there you say, I want my toy. fantasy is I want to watch a horse <laughs> fuck a pig while the woman sitting bareback <laughs> on the. It's eighty five videos. You're gonna get a horse with midgets, fucking a pig with three midgets jerking <laughs> off in the background. No, there it is. It's fifty four <laughs> videos like that. Just it's every fetish, every fantasy is there on full display. So uh, dinner time, Rob. What are you thinking? Al, I, I actually think I'm gonna go with my fourth dish of chicken parm this week. You're a you're a 
chicken parmaholic, bro. Can't stop. Yeah. And I can get it anytime I want, anytime I need it. You can. You know how? No, tell me. Using the Postmates app. Oh, I love it. From an early morning breakfast burrito to a bottle of wine after work, maybe that bottle of wine turns into three bottles of wine, Alex. You could Postmate some Advil, too. They do it all over at Postmates. For a limited time only, Postmates has given our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. To start your free deliveries, download the app and use code BROBIBLE. That's code BROBIBLE for $100 of free delivery credit with no minimum purchase for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Alex, that's a lot of fucking bottles of wine right And there. chicken parm. And chicken parms. A little bit, little bit of both. Anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmate it. I dig it. Speaking of jerking off, I've jerked off to Margot Robbie multiple times. Did you have a lot of contact with her throughout the movie? I did, I did. And Margot is one of the nicest people you will ever meet. She seems it. She is. And uh, one of the funniest experiences I have with Margot was the first time I met her in person. And I was with Leo and um, Jonah. And we were in a hotel room in New York. Um, the Mandarin Oriental, and we were preparing. We were actually having dinner that night with the producers, so we were all dressed up. And then she and Leo's like, "Listen, Margot wants to meet you because she wants to talk to you about your ex-wife, and you know she wants to, you know, kind of understand you and the character better." So I was like, "Great, great." So we were hanging out most of that day together, Leo and I and Jonah. And then at like five p.m., you know, the, the uh, phone rings. It's Margot. We're in a hotel room. I'm like, all right, send her up, and and she walks in. And she's dressed like for a really nice dinner with high heels, short skirt, plunging neckline, done up makeup, the whole freaking thing. And and Margot is so beautiful. She's one of those girls that literally sucks the air out of a room. When she walks into a room with just males, it's like there was three males and Margot walks. Like there was no oxygen. Like the room, like it was a fundamental shift in the fabric of the universe when she walked into the room. There really was. And 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 we're like trying to keep a straight face here. Like she just walks in and she's just like so striking looking, right? And um, so she's like, oh, she gives me a big hug. And she's like, how are you? Great. And so Leo's like, listen, you know, uh, Margot Jordan said you can ask me anything. She's like, oh, great. And Leo's like, just ask away. She's like, oh, my God, thank you so much. I can't tell you how much I appreciate, appreciate this. She takes a chair and she pulls up a chair. She's maybe three feet across me. She sits down, crosses a long bare legs. She has a high heel dangling. And she looks at me with this big blue eye. She's like, so tell me. She's what was it about your wife that you like so much? What was it about her? I'm like, you're kidding, Margot, right? <laughs> She's no serious. I said, I'm like, this. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, Margot, this. She's like, oh no, no. I mean, really? I mean, no, no. Was it a certain zest she had for life? Was it like a way? I'm like, no, no, Margot. I hated her. I just this. I despised every bone in her. <laughs> just this. She's like, no, really, I'm like, really, Margot. Just go make she's, the movie. She's like, really? I'm like, really, Margot. I'm like, I don't know if you realize how hot you are, Margot. She didn't realize. Did she uh, not pick up? Did it take her she, a while? No, to she's pick not up that on she's it? not smart. She's very smart, Margot. But she's like, really, she's very. I think she's very pure of heart. She's a really good person. She's a really good person, right. Margot. She really is. She is just not an asshole. She's just a good soul. Um, it makes that, you like that, her even that more. is an incredibly great actress, and she never tries to she doesn't try to trade on her look she's just really talented and happens to she's a really talented nice person who happens to be gorgeous you, you know what's amazing too is like you know you think the the role leonardo played and you think of what you don't see is 
you kind of had to direct them as far as they had to be picking your brain while making this movie. Well, Leo, I mean, Leo literally, I mean. Um, but you're getting it from all angles. He left Jonah nothing. Hill? Yeah, but he left nothing. Yeah, I, I met with all of them. But, um, but Leo left nothing up to chance. He prepared for this. And I think people don't know that. They say, oh, he's just so talented and he's, and he's handsome. But, you know, yeah, he, he is those things. But he works really hard. He takes things really seriously. He, Leo literally struggled over every single word in that script, literally with me um, and Marty going. He was so it was his passion project, Leo. So it wasn't a normal movie for him. It was not like his other movies. You can ask him that. if you ever have, have a chance to interview him. He'll tell you it was not his. You know, Leo's done every movie, and then there was Wolf of Wall Street was different for him. And he told it to me from the very beginning. He goes. I'm going to make this movie. He's like, just mark my, I promise, he looked me in the eye, he goes, I'm going to make this. There was times when it was very difficult to make because, you know, it's an R-rated movie, the shit's hitting the fan on Wall Street, um, it's, and, you know, the budget was coming in high, and Leo was like, I promise you, because he's attached to 100 films, and they're like saying, oh, Leo's doing this next week, Leo's doing this, he's doing that movie, he's doing this movie. He's like, just buddy, I promise you this one is different. And you and believed him when he, when he told you I that. I did, and, and also whenever my friends would run into him, anyone I, I know would see Leo, they'd always come up to Leo and say, oh, I'm friends with Jordan. He was always very gracious about that. He would sit down and he'd say just, oh my God. And he always would say, I am so excited. This is not my regular movie. This is my passion. I'm making this movie. So it was pretty obvious. Everyone knew that this was Leo's passion project. And how much did it change from when he first started doing, whether it's your impressions of you or not, to the final product? Did you just watch it grow? To so there's, it there's two aspects to this thing. There's re- one, there's really a couple of really interesting things about that. Number one is that the initial draft of the movie was written by Terry Winter. Boardwalk Empire, Sopranos, right? Just brilliant writer, nicest guy in the world. He adapted my book, and he just literally, the first draft was unbelievable. It was the movie that you saw, the first draft. On the first one. With the first draft, with some minor uh, alterations to it, except for one important thing. So what happens, he writes this draft, and everyone reads it like, holy shit, it's amazing. You yourself, you loved it. Everyone loved it, right? right? And Warner Brothers loved it. And it gets greenlit, it's just about to get started, and the writer's strike hits. Remember the the writer's strike in 2007? Yes. So what happens is the movie needed a polish, and everyone had to put their pens down. So Terry was unable to polish the script, and... Marty and Leo went on and did Shutter Island instead because that was ready. How devastated were you? Beyond devastated. So that, to me, my book was, wasn't even out yet. It was just about to come out, and I was on this trajectory to like write the, as a first-time author to have a book and a movie. It was like unheard of that because the, the likelihood of getting a book, of writing a book and getting published is one in a million. The likelihood of, of someone buying it in Hollywood is one in five million, and it, getting made is one in... A billion, <laughs> like, and then throw Leonardo, and then on one there. in a trillion never happens. Right? So such a, and I was having all of this. It was like, I'm like, am I blessed or something? Right? And then the writer's strike hits, and it's over. Just like that, everything dies. And Marty, because he's a director, it takes him a lot longer for each project. So Leo can theoretically do a movie every three months. He does, he doesn't, but he could. Right. Like that's why you see some actors are very busy. Like Brad Pitt or even Mark Wahlberg. Wahlberg. He doesn't stop. Right, because they're actors. But directors, Marty has to live with the picture for a year and a half, right? 
Marty's passion project was not Wolf of Wall Street. It was a movie called Silence, and which came out. And right, it was not. It was critically acclaimed, but not commercially successful. It was never meant to be. It was his passion. It was about you know more um, about um, the, you know the, about religion and stuff like that. So anyway, so once this window passed, I was screwed. It was closed, and we couldn't get Marty to come back to the table. So what, what happened now? And now, case? so now, now, flash back to what I first said about passion pro about your monetizing your passion so now i'm in mendocino writing and I'm saying to myself this is terrible i hate writing and i decided to become a speaker so i make this conscious decision to start going out there and speaking to make a long story short ultimately after some time very hard work i built this speaking business up and started making massive money again it became very successful before the movie came out and i was going all over the world making millions and millions of dollars as a speaker and trainer teaching sales and persuasion in a system called the straight line. So now, flash forward 2012, it's five years later, right? I'm rich again. And out of nowhere, I get a call from Leo. Buddy, you're never going to believe this. What? We're good to go. Marty's back in. We're going to make the movie now. Because I'm coming over to your house. Where do you, he goes, give me the address again. I forgot. I'm like, well, I live in a new house now. And I gave him my new address. The first time he came to my house, I was living in a tiny shack. You know, I just was out of jail, right? I was living in a tiny place, right? So I give him, when he comes out, it's a mansion on the ocean, on the beach. He walks in, he's like, what the fuck happened to you? What happened? How'd you get rich again? I said, oh, I'm, I, I go around, I teach sales. I mean, I, 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 he goes, I said, let me show you. So I put up a video on my TV of me go, speaking for like five or 6,000 people. And he starts looking, he's like, holy shit. Wait till Marty sees this. He said that to Marty, they rewrote the entire third act of the movie. Now, you notice in the movie now, there's an infomercial in there. There's all the sales training. It ends with sell me this pen. So what happened so was Leo that. Leo was loving it. Well, what happened was the point was the first draft, the one that Terry wrote, it ended with me in jail. The movie ended with me in jail. That was the fun because that was my life. I just got out of jail. So that as the movie ended. Over those five years, I rebuilt my life, got wealthy again, and they changed the movie to reflect and made it a comeback story. So I t so the, so the movie in those fights I rewrote my own life story. Essentially, my life story changed while it was being made, and the movie was infinitely better as a comeback story. And what that did for my business, obviously, now ending with a seminar. So my seminar business then exploded. Had to. You get it. Had to. And it was my brand. The straight line was on there. I teach you know this system called the straight line, um, and it became this incredible movie that was embraced by all people all over the world. And that's the story. Do you, uh, even just to, for me, even thinking about Leonardo DiCaprio now coming to your, how, how do you prep for Leonardo coming to your house? You put out chips and dip? I mean, it's just got to be so much <laughs> shit rolling through your head. Nah, it's, Leo's just not like that. He's like a very average guy, you know? Just, just like Leo's, he's not like that at all. And getting that call from him, I mean, you had to be over the moon. No, yeah, I was, I was um, somewhat skeptical. Not that I didn't trust Leo, but just that, you know, it was just like, um, it wasn't quite that, like there were rumblings. There was a lot of rumblings over the years. It was always about Scorsese, not Leo. Leo was committed every step of the way. And he was always promising me he would get it done. Now, we had many, many directors that wanted to do it. We had Todd Phillips, who wanted to direct it. I love Todd Phillips. Right. Okay, the Joker, okay, and the Tangover. And he got it, Todd Phillips. I met Todd. Um, he really got He understood the comic edge of it. Right, because it was a comedy. It was it sort of ended up being right, and uh, dark comedy it was a comedy for sure. Right, 
um, um, Ridley Scott wanted to do it. We, we actually had a deal. We had a deal with Ridley Scott. He signed off on it. Then they wouldn't let him out of doing that movie Prometheus. So that got, so it was like there was, there was some rumblings, and every rumbling always was with Leo as the lead. It was never about Leo. It was always Scorsese. So, but Marty was really intent on doing this picture silence, and Marty works very slowly. So I think he did in all those years between um, when he ended up doing um, Shutter Island. I think he only did Hugo, maybe. When he was coming out with those movies, because obviously there was a big halt put on it, would you be lying to say when those were coming out, you were kind of hoping that those bombed so that he keeps kind of saying, ah, I should have done Wolf of Wall Street, should have done Wolf of Wall no, Street? No, 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 no. First of all, Marty Scorsese, um, there are no bombs. Yeah, that's a very He good just point. does not bomb. And um, it's just a question of, you know, like when he did this, this picture silence and it wasn't a commercial big success, it wasn't meant to be. It was his, it was Marty's like trifecta for um, uh, three movies he done. One called The Mission, the other one called, the, I think, The Last Temptation of Christ. And this was third in a triumvirate of, of religious movies that I think Marty looks as his redemption of his own, of his own, his right, own life. Yeah, yeah, his own. So, yeah, sure. so uh, Marty, I think Wolf is, his, Wolf is his most successful movie of all time. Um, but he's, there's something, is, is something interesting about Marty is that what he does, I think, better than anyone in the world is that Marty puts up characters that are not being judged. In other words, what do you he mean by that? In other words, I don't know about you or the listeners here, but the one thing I hate more than anything when I'm watching a movie or a TV series is when they tell me how to feel. Don't moralize to me. Don't telegraph. Don't have someone still have the kid kill a cat. So, oh, I'm supposed to hate that kid. Let the viewer be Let me see things as they really are in life and then make my own decisions. So when I have, when I'm watching a movie and the characters are obviously bad and obviously good, oh, that's who I should love, that's who I should hate, and they could do it with one look, it could be one look, one tiny thing, all that do with The Wolf of Wall Street was have me do one thing wrong, differently and I'm an unredeemable asshole. Right. But Marty understands that life is far more complex. There's no absolute good. There's no absolute bad. Good people do bad things and bad people do good things. So what Marty does is I'm going to put characters on display and as they really are in life and let the audience decide how they want to feel. Right. That's, what what you the, have that's to appreciate. why people connect to his movies so deeply because he could take flawed characters. I was a flawed character, no doubt about it. There was things I did that were, that were reprehensible, but also things I did that were amazing. It was every person's dream, everyone's nightmare. They're saying that Marty Scorsese glamorized the use of drugs and glamorized Wall Street and obscene wealth, right? You know what? It's glamorous. He didn't glamorize it. It's glamorous. Well, And it's he, the way that it happened. Well, the point is, it's just, it is what it is, but... Marty doesn't try to say, okay, it's glamorous, so we need to then inject some disaster in there so the audience knows that you're not supposed to like this person. He says people are smart enough to know that good people do bad things, bad people. You understand? That's the point. And that's why his movies ring true to people. When people watch them again and again and again, they hold them over time because they're not moralized. Because what happens? What happens with morality? It changes from year to year. What's acceptable in this generation or the next five years would be considered completely wildly unacceptable or acceptable. It's not acceptable. Now, five years. Like, five years ago, you could do things you could never do today, right? So Marty doesn't try to moralize based on what the, what society would says you, this moment. Would you credit a lot of what he did to you being able to make a comeback? I made the comeback before the movie. 
Okay. No, it just was, it was icing on the cake. I would never, I, I remember I had one conversation with my book agent, wonderful guy. And when I decided that I didn't want to be a writer anymore and I wanted to go out and start speaking, I was in my car, my wife and I, we called him on the cell phone, it was the speakerphone. I said, hey, Joel, I said, I, 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 you know, I want to just tell you something right now. I've decided I'm going to become a motivational speaker and I'm going to go out there across the world and do events. He's like, oh, it's great. You'll be great at it. You just got to wait till the movie comes out. Just wait till they come for you. And in that moment, I, I almost wanted to pull the, I was so yeah, angry. You had to be ticked. I was like, and he didn't mean anything bad by that. Right. I was like, Joel, if you think that I'm going to wait for someone else to take action so then I can do what I want, I will do it with the movie. I'll do it without the movie. And, I, and, and ironically, by doing it without the movie, made the movie an infinitely better movie because it changed the ending of the movie. I didn't wait to become successful for The Wolf of Wall Street. I became successful and it changed The Wolf of Wall Street. I influenced my own life story because if you wait for other people to hand you things or do things, you can get whatever you want in life, but you have to have a plan to get there, take massive action, all the things that people that are empowered do. My, this is not, not, not a, um, like some big secret I'm telling people, but the point is that I, I actually live this at a very high level every day. I don't use other people's actions as either excuses or even though, yeah, I was successful because of, yeah, everything helps. Everything happens as it is. You can either take action in one way or take no action or take it another way. And the ball's in your court. It's up to you what you want to do with what life hands you. Life's going to hand you good stuff, bad stuff. There's opportunities every single day. And, you know, people say, oh, I got lucky. Well, you know, luck is when hard work meets opportunity. Right. I mean, it's just you talk about just a roller coaster of a life. I think to, to keep it going, I mean, you kind of got to have the energy that you do in order to sustain it. Um, well, I, I think that, remember this, I think that uh, energy is not a constant, and you could have literally, you could be out of energy. You could be tapped. Like, I can't go on. I'm too tired. I'm bored. I'm uninspired. And one little thing happens, and you are recharged, and you're 10 years old again, ready to take over the freaking world. Right. I will not deny right? to anyone listening to this, I have times when I feel too tired to go on. I'm not inspired. I don't feel it today. But you know what? I know that I'm only one moment away from greatness. It's only about what is that idea? What is that vision for the future? What is it that I'm going to focus on that inspires me so much? It's a conscious decision what you focus on. So if you want to feel inspired so well, you have to live a purpose-driven life okay great fucking obviously right but the point is how do you do that how do you actually live a purpose-driven life well it starts with identifying where you want to go what is that destination you want to get to that's gonna when you think about that it's gonna make you so inspired like if i could be doing that i would jump out of bed every single moment because i just want to embrace that life i'll do anything to live that life that's where all success starts then from there, you have to work backwards. Well, how do I take that and make it into reality based on where I am today? Then you have to draw out a roadmap to get there. There's all these things. But it starts with the future, the destination. Joe, you know what I wanted to ask you, and I'm not letting you leave here what? without asking. You mentioned tired. 
If I put a quaalude in front of you right I now, I take it right now in an absolute heartbeat. Oh, well, I would because I haven't eaten in four hours. <laughs> if I had eaten, I'd go vomit first. I'd give myself an enema and then come they're, back and take that, it. They're that. They're that fucking yeah, good. Fucking yeah, and I'm sober for like twenty something years. I would still take one. Right and now. what they portrayed in the movie is exactly what kind of takes over. Jonah you. Hill did a really good job on that scene. Like you know the uh, the quaalude, the, right? Steve Madden. <laughs> it was what it was like. I coached them through that, by the and way. And why can't they get them anymore? They're, well, th thank God they're illegal. I mean, I'm happy they're not around. They're that they're, good. They are that good. There's nothing like they were great. It really, when they gave you this euphoric feeling with no hangover the next day. So you wake up and you were just ready to rock and roll. Yeah. But you was... couldn't take a quaalude and then go work in the office, right? No. You had to be done for the but day? But you could take the, no. You could take a quaalude. So in, in the throes of my addiction, I, I would like to get high at least four times a day. So I would wake up at like 5 a.m. before my wife, take four quaaludes. I'd go up to and down. Start. Yeah, but then I'd be high as a kite between 5 and 7. Then she'd wake up. Then I'd be sober again. So that they don't, like, when they wear off, you're normal again. It's like alcohol. Where you're, like, you're not sloppy and tired. Once it's over, it's over. But so you, there was shit in the middle to where start with the quaalude, re-energize with cocaine. Exactly. So you were really just Like a Petri. I was balancing like a Petri dish. Like a human Petri. 20 drugs. Like, you know, trying to find the perfect mixture so I get to a state of toxic poise where I was like just high as a kite, but only I knew it. And your wife kind of just rolled with it? She rolled with it because she, you know, she dabbled. She did drugs too. She dabbled, all right? Um, not nearly as much as me, but I think she became desensitized to it after a while like of how intense my addiction had become. Um, and she also did help me get sober. Like she actually was the one that um so you credit a lot of that to her absolutely that that my initial getting sober i absolutely give her a big part that she you know she said no more like i won't take it i'll leave unless you get sober and at that point that was like i didn't want to split my family if i still loved her so yes she was definitely instrumental in fueling my addiction and then getting me sober at the same time but i blame her for i don't blame her for my addiction and my addiction was was on me but she certainly was like a great running partner for many years. But she never did. She never abused it the way I did it. Right. She did drugs casually. I did them severely. And um, and then when it got really, really bad, she did finally help me. She did put her foot down. And the last question that I want to ask you, I'm not going to sit here and ask you to sell me a pen. I'm sure you've already got that a couple times by now. But if I hand you 100 Girl Scout cookies right now, do you still got it to where you could walk down Beverly Boulevard and crank those out in an hour? Absolutely. It stays in you? Yeah, I could sell anything to anyone. I could. But more important than that, though, is that if, if when I was walking down Tannin last, three weeks ago. Did they get you with the Girl Scout cookies? A boy, a little boy got me. I bought with, five um, Tangalongs. I bought, I bought, he had a box of these chocolate bars. And he's like, Mr. Will you buy one bar? I said, how much? He's Little like, did he know who he was talking to? I said, so someone told him. So what happened was, um, I, I said, how much for the whole box? He was like, uh, $150. I gave him $200. I said, yeah, I took the box. And then people noticed it was me. And they said, That's, you know, George, and the kid, they said, they can, you know who that is? He's like, ah! He starts <laughs> screaming. I, I swear, I wish I had it on video. So I was with my girlfriend at the time. It was the funniest thing. So he could have sold you any, 50 any, fucking any, boxes. Any time... I have either a lemonade stand. And everyone knows this to be true. That was my in my neighborhood where I was living for many years. Any lemonade stand, any kid that's selling, they happen to catch me. I will literally drive around the block. I'll go out of my way if I see a lemonade stand in the corner of my eye, 
and I'm on the other side of the street, I will turn around and buy out all their lemonade or all their cookies or anything else. They're having a, they're having um toys. I'll buy every toy they have. Whatever they're doing, I'll buy everything they have. Let me ask you something. Because that was me. Right. I was that kid. So you kind of you give you give back. Yeah, and I I had that. I tell you what, I in closing, I had this lemonade stand. It was the greatest lemonade stand in the history of lemonade stands, right in front of my house. Wasn't and, loaded with quaaludes, was it? No, 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 no. It was these little girls, and and uh, for years, less between two thousand and seventeen to two thousand sixteen to night two thousand nineteen, these three cutest little seven year te- seven to ten year olds and their dad, and they made this lemonade stand. And first of all, the freaking tangerine juice, the lemon, it was so good. And they made cookies that were un- the caviar at this thing. It was ridiculous. So this, and they had it designed with like a, like look like a hut with a thatched roof and the sign and music playing. These little girls were so freaking cute. You could eat them up alive. They were that cute, these girls, right? And literally, people with it was the highest grossing lemonade stand <laughs> in the history of lemonade stands. They had to be making two this, grand a day. This little kids. fucking Jordan and, Belfort. And every single day, I go by there and buy all their. They say, but I, one day I was like, I wasn't like, they're like, where were you? We went home. We had four cookies left. We expect you to buy all. Our... I'm like, sorry, I was traveling. Yeah. What if, if your kids say, Dad, I, I want to work on Wall Street? What would you say? Whatever you want to do, you would you'd be okay with it? Absolutely. All I want for my kids is to be happy and to feel empowered. That's it, I don't care what they do. I don't care what they do, what their preferences are. I'm the most liberal, when it comes socially to think that I'm the most liberal person in the world. Um, and I just want them to be happy. I'm very fortunate, I got three kids. Uh, they're all really successful and they're really happy. Um, and I'm thankful for that. And you, you could tell you seem happy as well. You really do. It's no, pretty I am amazing. Happy. I'm very happy. After all you've been through, you know, kind of where you are today. And, uh, you know, we like getting as much characters in here as possible. Um, this is definitely on top of the list right here. So I'm a character. Yeah. So tell your people, by the way, I might as well sell something. Yeah, absolutely. Here. Promote away. The stage is yours, Jordan. I'm going to give you something for free. My podcast. I have a podcast, Beautiful. which is really great. I had Bob Mentoring on my podcast, who I love, by the Character. way. Character. He was in here. He's, He's great. Um, no, I have a podcast, which is really awesome. Um, and I, you know, at first, it's interesting. When I first thought of my podcast, it's The Wolf's Den. Um, you can go to just jordanbelfort.com. Yeah, I was actually watching Apple, it yesterday. everywhere, right? Anyway, but um, when I first started doing it, I tried a lot of different stuff. Because I was, you know, when I, it's just a logical move. I want to see what guests my people liked and so forth, right? And I was doing well with it. And then I took a step back at like four months and okay what's working what people don't like and the overarching comment i got was they wanted to hear me speak more so i changed what you're not what you're pretty used to that's yeah, not a problem and that, for you. And that wasn't surprising so i changed the format now so where i rather than having a guest just interviewing a guest i'll do a hybrid where i'll speak for about 20 30 minutes myself frame a certain topic then i'll have a guest on that will crystallize that topic and that's really i mean since then my podcast has just been soaring and uh and i'm really enjoying it now a lot so i i have it on once a week it comes out i think wednesday at like 2 a.m in the morning but it's in and i release it only on audio to start i was watching it yesterday i i happen to like it a lot i really do i mean I, you know i get an absolute kick out of you and if i'm the producer of the show mm-hmm. i'm just handing you the mic and just saying fucking go right. we're bringing guys and time to time let them speak so tonight i'm doing one i'm gonna do one on coronavirus oh baby oh baby I know, a lot Good. of controversies. That's it. 
Well, folks, stay tuned. Just an absolute pleasure. This was a wild ride for me. Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street. We will see you next week, folks.